Haven't you ever done the wrong thing? For of love? course, of course. For love? Ah, for love, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. I think we got a little measure of Artie here. On. This is uh, this is this is the Artie that we know and love. I'm Rob. I'm Michelle. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trade Splitting, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we'll talk about baby formula, a tree falling in Geneva, and of course, the end of globalization with Michelle. And a little later, we'll be speaking to Inu Manak from the Council on Foreign Relations to get the North American perspective on the state of trade policy and obviously, of course, the future of the WTO. That again. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, let's get into it. I know you like it. That's why I said it. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 32. It's also the atomic number of germanium. If you're wondering what germanium is, it's a lustrous, hard, brittle, grayish, white metalloid found in the foothills of Bavaria. And of course, not words used to describe Boris Johnson ever. Germanium is also used as a semiconductor in transistors and various other electronic devices. If you're wondering, only one of those facts were true. Interesting that this uh, this week it's germanium and last week it was gallium. I'm glad you picked that up. You are listening to what we're talking about. Anyway, before we do get started into the serious stuff, we have an important announcement. No, Rob uh, is not leaving us, but Valentina has joined us here at TS as a producer, and we're excited to have her join. We're all doing a little golf clap. To this. So what happened to Michelle? Michelle is here. Michelle, what happened to you? I'm good. I'm okay. I just have other stuff to do in the meantime. So now I'll become an executive producer and correspondent, right? White House field correspondent. Ooh. Vice chairman. <laughs> Very good. Just adding titles there. So not to digress too much, we also did have some listener feedback about our previous episodes. One listener did write us to tell us, uh, quote, I am a super fan of your trade splitting podcast together with Robert. Glad that you're back again. So she was obviously writing to, to me, not Rob. We missed you. And thanks for all your efforts. The topics are always well chosen and suit the current context. Even if I wanted to make that up as a listener feedback, I couldn't do a better job. That's great. And anybody who calls me Robert doesn't know me. That's how it's real. This whole, this whole person, this person writing to you, I don't like it. Anyway, uh, listener, thank you very much for your for your kind feedback. You've done your job in making Rob angry, and I'm here for it. Keep yeah. sending them in. Don't forget to send us in your comments, questions at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Thanks, Artie's mom. Well, everybody, we'll get right into this episode's Stuff That Went Wrong this week segment. You wouldn't know it happened unless you heard it on Tradesplaining. Let's just get right into it. First question which you can respond to is, should we really be worried about the threat of deglobalization? Remember, I didn't say globalization, I said deglobalization. Yeah. So we've been hearing, we've been throwing around words like resiliency and, and things like this to talk about, or at least around the rich world. Decades of easy money have cushioned us and from various shocks, maybe except for Rob's mortgage. Could we be heading for the actual end of this? We've heard also talk about French shoring and uh, placing, this is basically placing strategic supply chains in friendly countries i.e. not Russia in this case, and for talking, taking the current geopolitical climate. In fact, this is a bit of a distortion about trade, but what do you think? Are we seeing the start of deglobalization or is this a, a wave, if you will, a ripple? Yeah, well, I think we've, we've talked about it before, but I think we are seeing fragmentation now. So there are different camps, let's say, building around China, around Russia and related countries around the West, in quotes, and we see it hardening. So China is starting to pull away from some of the links it has to to, to Western economies, we know, obviously, sanctions are getting harder, harder and harder, and more and more strict. And we see friendshoring, 
friendshoring, meaning we're not going to put our supply in some place it's most efficient. We're going to put it in some place where politically we think it's under least threat. So I do think these things have a kind of deglobalization effect. And I do think that they're, they're in, in terms of, you know, economics, they're simply distorting. So we're going to see higher costs for things. I think also we're seeing threats that may actually reach us in terms of higher energy costs, higher food costs. We see uh, supply shortages of things like baby food we'll talk about in a minute. So I think that we may be seeing something we haven't seen, we know for a very long time. I'm probably the only one sitting around this table who's lived through stagflation, so high inflation, high unemployment. You were in your prime when that happened. I was, yeah, probably was. Like, were you around 40-ish? I got my first mortgage in 1975 when uh, the rates were at 16%. I, I just want to say that I'm a friend of friendshoring. For example, I want to friendshore you onto the supply chain of this podcast. Because we've been outsourcing everything to Michelle at this point. So it's good to have you French short on here. I think it sounds like a terrible pickup line. <laughs> Moving on. Here's another one that you'll like because you're digressing. Please. And that is oil is the new oil. After years of self-satisfying discussions about the decline in profitability of fossil fuels as an investment, Ukraine has really thrown everything back into perspective. So oil is once again super profitable. The U.S. is, of course, a big winner. Fracking, LNG, things like this has been usually polluting, but is also helping the U.S. become self-sustainable, if you will. Saudi Aramco has just also posted record quarterly profits. Uh, you know, as we said, the prices are surging, and so this has been a boon for them. So we're kind of seeing a reversal of this trend over the past two, three decades where green is the new it word and sustainability and things like this. What is your take? I think absolutely. So suddenly the oil-related oil stocks are going up. Suddenly those investment funds are turning back to it. We see the most valuable company in the world is Saudi Aramco. And I think it's, we thought we didn't have to do anything because it was just going to gradually decline. So solar panels were going to become more profitable. The price of wind energy was going to go down and so on. And all it took was this. All it took was this, uh, this invasion to change everybody's mind. Now what's important is oil, you know, is energy security. So we buy very polluting LNG from the U.S., it's made through fracking, it's put on boats, it's shipped, and so on. It's, it's quite disturbing in a way. It hasn't really, it could be reflected in, for instance, less energy use or a greater focus on insulating buildings. But in fact, it's really what's been put into is let's find more oil, let's develop more oil, and mm. let's, mm. And, and in a way, let's friendshore our oil production to the U.S. Yeah, very much so. I, I think this uh, highlights a, a couple of things. And the first point, I think for me is that we based a lot of the last 20 to 30 years on economic efficiency and putting supply chains in the places where they're most effective, most efficient in cost and labor terms. But that came with the caveat or assumption, if you will, like many economists do when they're writing their formulas, that you would not have things like invasions that would distort the market or stop wheat from getting out of Ukraine. So it's really forced us into a rethink, or forced countries into a rethink, I should say. And it's, it's obviously shown us that domestic priorities always come first, no matter how much talk there is about this international quote-unquote community and, and how things should be done on a more global level and supply chain should be global. And there are all these sort of correct reasons for it. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to how you're going to get elected. Just to build on what you were just saying, I think there's two areas we've seen that have become kind of case studies for protectionism and for where trade is not really working. Mm. One of them that we've been hearing a lot about is baby formula. So in the U.S., they have a shortage of baby formula. Suddenly it's off the shelves, there's supply issues when factory closes. And the reason is because there's a high import bans on it, there's labeling requirements, all sorts of trade policy reasons why you cannot import baby food, even from places like Europe, where presumably it's probably safe. 
And and listeners who are not in the trade space every day should know that it's not just a matter of tariffs at this point, but it's actually, as Rob mentioned, lab, uh, labeling requirements and other minutia, which make it much harder to get products from outside the U.S. And that's you you really want to be eating Canadian mashed peas and, and baby formula? I don't think so. No, I'm for GMOs in my baby formula. Yeah. So that's why we buy American. That's why you're so tall. <laughs> we also have, I mean, there's another one which is about export bans. So this is from 2008, 2010 when we had the, let's say, last kind of food crisis, export bans worsened it because they, again, they create these stoppages in supply chains. Everybody who you know sees an export ban in front of them puts an export ban on of their own. And uh, we see one being put on by India. Mm-hmm. A few days after they talked about coming into the, the market with more wheat. They this put is on my shocked face. Ban. I'm putting on a shocked face for the listeners. <laughs> so the point is, you never think of an export ban as a good idea until you do. Until it is. So... It's kind of a classic response, and the WTO, if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it in order to address stuff like this, which is incredibly distorting. So how are we going to get the wheat out if everybody puts on export pans? Uh, Go keto. Yeah, exactly. I was going to start eating spelt and uh, and ham. (laughs) Valentina's already pretty terrified because pasta is going up. The other thing I wanted to touch on very quickly, because it's become like basically a, a weekly story for us, so we don't have to spend too much time on it, but you'll be happy to know, or not happy, depending on who you are, that Brexit is in fact still a thing. It's not a thing. Mommy and daddy are fighting. In shades of Johnny Depp and the Amber Heard trial, the UK is throwing the entire Brexit deal up in the air with plans to legislate a quote-unquote solution to the North Ireland border issue. And this was originally solved by the Brexit deal, which is now being undone through legislation. If you're having trouble following, you're not the only one. The EU has has followed this up by threatening to legislate its own prior. So they'll show the UK that they'll legislate their own prior threats that they made, not in writing, but vocally, as to what would happen if the UK did so, and around we go. So the EU in this case is Johnny. Tune in. <laughs> All I know is this whole thing just bleeped the bed. <laughs> anyway, tune in next week to find out what happens on this latest telenovela. Inflation, as we talked about earlier, is still on everyone's mind. So we talked about tariffs being mentioned as a possible way to alleviate some of this pain, if only everyone agreed on how to do it or when to do it. So it's been reported that Catherine Tai and uh, Janet Yellen are at odds over when and how uh, they should reduce, remove, start to remove the Trump tariffs in order to help alleviate inflationary pressures. What did you call them? Downward inflationary pressures? Up, upward pressure on upward. upward pressure on prices. Because we're only going up. And nothing highlights this more for me than the Florence Coffee Bar customer who called the police over the price of an espresso. Yeah. What happened uh, it's there? It's a true story. Valentina, our new producer, is Italian. So I'm hoping she can shed some light on this. All I know is this sounded like something out of The Onion. You have to post the price of an espresso. You can't just go around charging anything you want. What do you think about inflation, Rob? How has your price of coffee changed? Because for me in Geneva, it's always the same. Expensive. I stopped asking for the price. I think we have to go back a couple of years to realize that the Renters Association here sent me a letter. They said you can get a break on your rent. I agreed with them. But I agreed to a five-year lease and an escalation clause in my rent which would go up with uh, consumer prices. And I thought, we'd never have inflation in Geneva. And now every year I get a letter and I'm paying 42 francs more every year. The oh, horror. That's, that's one daily ski pass for you, or half a day ski pass you're going to have to cut back on. <laughs> Poor so thing. I am being, I am being pursued being by s- the consumer price index of Geneva. It's right behind me, nipping on my heels. I blame Joe Biden. Just wait till you have to pay $8 for a pint of beer. Say it ain't so, Uncle Joe. Inu Manak is a fellow for trade policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, my old job, an expert in international political economy, 
Her research focuses on U.S. trade policy and the law and politics of the World Trade Organization. She's also originally Canadian, which we'll get to in the interview. So, Inu, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Why don't we just get started by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I understand I made the mistake of of assuming you you were an economist, when in fact you study international political economy. So sorry for that. I would not want to lump you in with the economists. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me here. You're right. I am a political scientist, not an economist, although I have lots of friends who are economists and I like them very much. I started out studying European and North American economic integration and then slowly expanded that focus to other international economic institutions. And I would say I was mainly curious about why states cooperate through international institutions and how stakeholder interests are taken into account in these spaces. And most of my work today focuses on U.S. trade policy and the World Trade Organization. So there's an a natural progression in the topics that I've covered. And I'd say that COVID-19 has really made me more grateful for globalization than I ever thought possible because cross-border exchanges in both research and development production through global supply chains and international logistics delivered the very vaccines that are helping us return to somewhat normal today. And I would say that the story of the COVID vaccine development and distribution is really a triumph of globalization. So these are some of the big lessons I've taken away from it. People, there's a lot of people don't agree somehow. We've had conversations with people who've said, the vaccine uh, proved also weakness of globalization, which is distributional issues. And that whatever, there's 20 doses for me in the US and there's no doses for somebody who's in Yemen sort of thing. So it's 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 a kind of theme and we'll ask you later whether globalization is dead. So you may want to take a note and, and because uh, we, we hear this so many times, but what do we do to get that message out? Globalization worked. Globalization has many benefits. People aren't taking the same conclusion you did. Yeah, that's true. And I think part of the reason is that we have to separate out the process of what globalization allowed us to achieve. And a lot, when you look at how the vaccine was developed, how quickly it was rolled out, uh, a lot of that is because of the mechanisms that globalization has put in place. Now, the issue of distribution throughout the world is a political issue and it's an institutional issue. And this has to come down to a different discussion about what governments prioritize. I mean, we saw this even early on in the pandemic in terms of the export restrictions where governments were pursuing national economic policies that were turning inwards to protect themselves without thinking about how they could help their neighbors and work together to address supply shortages. So I think a lot of that comes down to what politically is saleable and what people think will make sense to them as politicians to pursue certain policies, right? So vaccinating the U.S. first, for example, was a clear policy by the Trump administration and even the Biden administration. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you have to explain to people why you're sending vaccines somewhere else, you know? And so this is a difficult question, but it's a political one. It's not an issue about globalization. So globalization is not that we can, we can put a pin in that all those articles. I, I don't think globalization is dead. I'm going to say we're not witnessing the end, but rather I would say maybe the nature of globalization is changing. We're seeing, for instance, more focus on regionalization. There has been regionalization with us for quite some time. It's just that we're adjusting our focus. The U.S. pursued the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, as a way to push along talks in the Uruguay round way back when, competitive liberalization. So we pursued regionalization when multilateral efforts stalled. I think we're in the same phase where multilateralism hasn't been as effective. And so we're turning towards our regional partners more. And I think maybe in the United States, we're seeing a bit more of a retreat from globalization and the rhetoric too, and some of the policy 
policy choices, a lot amplified, I would say, by the Trump administration's policies on multilateral disengagement and then unilateral actions to take tariffs against China, against even our allies as well. So I think those things certainly amplified this retreat from globalization on part of the United States. So, I mean, I, I was making a couple of jokes to start, to start this, but if I'm being a bit more serious, if I take people I know back home, I'm from the U.S. originally, is it the case that we have been quite upfront with what the benefits of globalization are? And those are, we're all quite clear. We've, we've talked about this many times, but is the opposite true? Have we been as upfront or as clear with what this would come at the expense of? On one hand, we say globalization is great and we should keep doing it, but then we don't say manufacturing won't be touched or it's steel mills will, will keep going on forever and ever. Is this a, a fair criticism? Because I, I don't think until recently, the last couple of years at least, we haven't been seeing as much ink spilled on the trade-offs, if you will. I'm hesitant to say negative aspects, but the trade-offs. I, I would say that the current anti-globalization wave that we're witnessing here reminds me of the debates in the 1990s as the United States opened up amidst an economic boom. You remember NAFTA wasn't meant to be the end game of regionalization. Clinton wanted to pursue the free trade area of the Americas that would expand our economic relations all the way to Argentina. But there was significant domestic pushback against that for a variety of reasons. And at the same time, there was pushback at that time too against the World Trade Organization, the famous battle in Seattle that was broadcast around the world, which calls to mind similar similar anti-globalization rhetoric that we hear today. Now, I think, unfortunately, that it's not that the institutions that we created at the time failed to deliver. And I, and I don't think the messaging necessarily, as you said, lived up to explain that as well. But we've had a lot of economic opportunity and growth from these, not despite them. But where we failed is to adjust to the changes in the global economy domestically. We haven't taken the steps in the United States in particular to prepare our workforce for a 21st century economy. You know, politicians are obsessed with creating manufacturing jobs in the United States, even though manufacturing doesn't play that large of a role. It's been pretty stagnant over time. Manufacturing hasn't declined, though. It's been very stable. It's just that the services sector in the United States has grown so much more than the manufacturing sector. And in fact, Scott Lunscombe has a great paper on this, on the deindustrialization of the United States, where he notes that between 97 and 2019, real gross output and real value added of private sector services producing industries increased by 87% and 77.4%. And in contrast, if you look at manufacturing, it increased more slowly, though still in an impressive 18.7% and 52.8%. So he observes that these long-term trends date back to the 1940s. Politicians haven't addressed that and have not been very open to explaining that manufacturing is not the base in which we need to be competitive in the world and that we need to stop blaming globalization and foreign institutions for things that we're failing to do at home that would make Americans more competitive globally. And I think that's where really the problem lies. I think that we, we've heard this, the, the idea of accompanying measures of, of supportive policy environment and so on. And, and I guess the, the, it, it brings up this issue of trade is just not that important. It's just simply not. I think sometimes we make the mistake of saying a trade agreement is going to save everything or a trade agreement is going to destroy everything, but it's not going to do either one. And that many, many of the things that trade, the trade is transmitting are much bigger than trade, which is, which is a weird thing. Like we should stop talking about this trade splaining and talk about it as everything else planning. <laughs> we'll well, call you might it the be world, out of a job, everything then. else. <laughs> so 
so I, I think that's 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 the the issue, and maybe it takes us to a, to a question for you on U.S. trade policy, which is so we hear you know Catherine Tai is making all sorts of announcements. It's not about really about tariffs. It's not about old school trade agreements. It's about deeper engagement, bigger things, non-tariff measures, procurement, and so on. But it, what it seems to end up being is more like it's about nothing at all. Like there doesn't seem to be anything happening. There's a, it seems like there's a paralysis, even to the point of holding on to obviously Trump-style China tariffs. So what is happening? Is, is anything going on? Is it just like it's really it's really below the surface? It's really bubbling? What Rob means is despite globalization being a thing and us having Zoom and, and news to consume in Europe, we still don't know what's going on in the US. So please tell us. <laughs> or at least Rob does it. He still reads I'll try my best. Uh, it's hard to know, figure out. What has happened the last 20 years? <laughs> it is. I think it is tough to disentangle a bit sometimes and to, to read between the lines of what's being said in the policy pronouncements or lack thereof that we're seeing from the current administration. I mean, I would say there are a few broad trends that are important to emphasize. The first that U.S. trade policy is sort of shifting away from a focus on reciprocal trade, where we're thinking about negotiating trade agreements, where we give and get to really an enforcement mindset where the government is far more concerned with making sure that others are abiding by the rules that we help create and continue to create, but also trying to generate new rules to address perceived imbalances in our trading relationships. The problem, however, is that we don't really have much of a trade policy right now at all, so to speak. The Biden administration is just uh, coasting off of the Trump administration's trade policy and keeping most of it in place. But part of it is also because this current administration has prioritized domestic initiatives first. I think Biden made that pretty clear at the outset. And so he's been doing things like strengthening rules for Buy American in government procurement contracts. But when it comes to defining how we're supposed to be updating international rules to deal with all these trade and issues that you mentioned that reflect our interests, we're woefully behind that, right? And I also disagree with comments that were made by U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai recently characterizing the global trading system as in need of a complete rethink. I really don't think we do. We should find ways to use the tools we have and update them where required to achieve the goals we want to do. I don't think there's no reason a trade and issue like labor and environment can't be incorporated into existing rules. And in fact, I think if you look at the most recent draft text of the fisheries negotiations, the WTO, you will see that forced labor concerns raised by the United States were successfully incorporated, but that agreement remains not complete because we haven't got to MC-12 yet. And there's not a lot of push from the United States to get this across the finish line. So there's a way forward here, but the administration doesn't really seem to make trade a central part of their policy writ large. I think that's part of the problem. So, I mean, you mentioned WTO, part of my salary is paid by them. So is it going to disappear? And am I going to have to take a pay cut? No. <laughs> Move next question. Do you want me to answer that? <laughs> answer that. Go. Uh, I got to, I got to prepare. Obviously I need to get a second job. Maybe McDonald's. I don't know. Well, gosh, what can I say? To be very blunt about it. It doesn't look great. It doesn't even look sort of good, if I have to be honest, looking ahead to MC12. And I think that's a real shame, to be honest, because we had a lot of momentum last year, and it's unfortunate being lost. It's been further complicated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, obviously, which cast a shadow over negotiations in Geneva. And from the US perspective, I think it just far too long to appoint an ambassador to the WTO. And I would say that we wasted the last year not having someone in place. Now, that said, the administration has said that they support the WTO. 
what that means, it's hard to tell. What version of the WTO do they support? It's not really clear. What is the future WTO going to look like? I think that there will be some role for the WTO, but how important it is, the international trading system remains to be seen. I think that the U.S. would be wise to invest in actual reform efforts rather than just having unending dialogue over the things that we might be doing. And I think we have a lot of negotiations that we should be investing in to get done so that we can show that the WTO can deliver. Because it's not just the WTO that delivers, it's the members that are part of it. WTO doesn't make rules, we make the rules. And I think, unfortunately, in some of the rhetoric we're seeing from the administration and others, they make it seem like that's not the case. And I think that's, that's really a problem. And, and can the idea of it be, you know, the most favored nation and everybody can be part of this. Now we're withdrawing that from folks we don't like. So Russia, as we acknowledge, Russia bad, but now we take away mostly, we, we, we pull them out of organizations. We further fragment the trading system. So this doesn't seem to be very, very healthy situation. I would say one major thing that is different from the trade policy of today than I would say even looking back 10 years ago is the complete erasure in a way of the line between economic and national security, right? Trade is being utilized as a normal tool for enforcing national security interests. And I think this is a significant shift in U.S. policy, and we're starting to see it in Europe too. And it's going to have major implications for the future of global trading system. And when we talk about, for example, expelling Russia from the WTO, I think think really long and hard before we do something like that, right? Because the trading system is meant to apply to all who are part of it. We have 164 members. And I think that that's an amazing feat that we achieve something like that to begin with. And then when we start breaking that up and saying, well, you're deserving of this and you're not deserving of this, we're going to fracture that system entirely. It's irrelevant to the entire global economy. Like what's the purpose of the WTO if say we kick out Russia and then China as well? which might be next on the chopping block if some have their way, who knows? But there are questions about whether something like the WTO can accommodate a non-market economy like China. This is a question that's been raised here in Washington for many, many years. And I think we have to be really cautious about how we handle this question and what that means in terms of reform of the institution itself. How much of this difficulty and this gridlock we're seeing at an organization like the WTO, how much of this is showing us that it's quite hard to negotiate much more than simply reducing tariffs or agreeing on a, a certain level of tariffs for for all involved. Now when we're talking about labor standards and, and things like this and other things that Catherine Ty has talked about, are, are we just seeing that it's much more difficult to negotiate these on, on as you mentioned, the 168 member level rather than doing it on a, for lack of a better word, piecemeal? So country, a few countries at a time rather than 168 at a time. I, I, I do think that it does pose a problem. The consensus approach of the WTO does pose a problem to its long-term survival. We, we do need to engage in more plurilaterals but obviously there's opposition from some of the membership on even talking about plurilaterals to begin with, right? So we have to figure out how this organization is going to survive absent breaking off some things for some willing members to go ahead and tackle. And I think you're right that tariffs are, are much easier to negotiate than, say, an agreement on labor standards or on environmental measures, because every everyone's at a different stage of dealing with these issues. We have countries with lots of variation in their economic development with different interests. And I think we have to be really cautious in, in how we go about incorporating new rules that perhaps are framed 
for the benefit of some and not all, right? And so when we think about, for example, uh, new rules on environment and trade, we also have to think about how we help developing countries green their economies without suffering from taking on too much and that stunting their growth and their trajectory to really rise up the economic ladder, right? So there has to be some commitment, advanced economies to provide money to help with that capacity adjustment. And so I think there has to be a broader discussion about what everybody's willing to put in to get the outcomes that they want. And right now, I think a lot of the discussions are, you need to do this, you need to do that are more and more and more, but less about how we can work together to solve the problems that we all share because environmental issues of climate change affect, right? It doesn't care about borders. And so we really need to think about it more holistically than we currently are. So on, on that happy note, Inu, that wasn't the fun stuff, right? It's all fun. <laughs> I was having fun. Every minute of trade splaining <laughs> is fun. You're, you're always be selling. ABC, Rob, you've seen the movie. Always be closing, my son. Closing. Always be closing. Whatever. I'm not that old. I've only seen, I've only seen the clips on YouTube. We're going to move over to the, I guess we'll call it, we can still call it the expat focused part of of the interview. Actually, the scientific part. Also scientific, like everything we do. So I understand you grew up in Canada. So can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about your home country living abroad, in this case, the US, that you didn't realize before? For example, maple syrup is better, is actually definitively better up north where Jon Snow lives. It definitely is. No, I, I do not buy Vermont maple syrup. Sorry, guys. This is sacrilege. It's also because you didn't vote for Bernie Sanders, right? (laughs) (laughs) I won't comment on my voting record, but, you know, I I would say Canada is a quirky place. And I don't think I fully appreciated how quirky it was while I was living there. You almost don't see it. I think you have to go away to sort of value parts about the country and then notice its flaws. And I have to say, it's it's really nice place. People have this thing that Canadians are nice. They are mostly, unless they're trade negotiators, in which case maybe not so much. But I feel like it's, it's validated all the characterizations of Canadians, I have to say. And I've also been shocked by how many Canadians don't live in Canada and I meet them everywhere I go. It's like they are just taking over the world, it seems. And I have no idea why this happened. So yeah, it's everywhere I go in the world, I meet a Canadian. And it's sort of like just meeting your best friend. It's such an odd thing. But <laughs> it's really made me value Canada in so many ways. The Canadians look and act like us in many ways. That's that's the very scary bit. Yeah, yeah. so you don't you recognize it. So I understand Justin Timberlake is the, is the prime minister up there. So if we if we set up a scale between zero and Justin Justin Timber tr- tr- Trudeau, sorry Justin Trudeau, is you miss a, it. Is there a difference? Justin Timberlake was prime minister. I might move back. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, he'd change things certainly. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I would say I I do miss Canada a lot. It's I miss hockey night in Canada on the weekends, going to hockey games where people actually understand the rules. I really miss that, to be honest. So I think there's that. And and the poutine, honestly, it's my guilty pleasure. I love it. Everyone should eat it. It's really hard to find cheese curds in the United States you have to go to Wisconsin apparently to get them so this is a real problem as well we need you're, to um, you're just saying increase that because Rob's here 100% you mentioned Wisconsin <laughs> cheese of cheese curds is that an element of poutine is cheese curds oh that's fantastic it's fundamental it's the topping you must have it otherwise oh, it's not poutine wow because the last Canadian we had on he did not ever eat it he couldn't even tell us what was in there it just seemed like fries and cheese elitist no. very elitist 
Yeah. You need you need fries, you need gravy, and you need cheese curds. That's the three fundamentals. Okay. And there's duck fat. Duck fat is really important. It makes it taste so much better. But yeah, yeah I feel like you, you need to have poutine to have a Canadian passport. It's just essential. I feel like we should change the name just because of the geopolitical climate these days. <laughs> <laughs> Geneva's boring. Folks come come up with this quite a bit. Discuss. Is Geneva boring? So, okay, I'm going to go against the grain and say it's not boring because I have to say you have to seek out the things in Geneva that are fun and interesting. And there's a lot there. I mean, I find people often come there for work meetings or whatever, and they don't like leave the building and say, oh, that was terribly boring. And they go to like the restaurant, clearly are tourist traps. So maybe venture out, explore, see what's out there. The mountains are beautiful. The, the, there's so much nature in Geneva. The vineyards, take a train, you can go across all of Switzerland really quickly. The Montreux Jazz Festival. And and there's just so much around there. And even in Geneva itself, I mean, gosh, it's fun just to hang out by the lake after work. It's so nice just to like meet people. And I think there are some pretty good restaurants out there too. So I feel like Geneva is not that boring. And yeah, maybe people just need to look harder for something interesting. I think they're boring for saying it's boring. That's what I think. Also, do you have a contract with the Geneva Tourism Authority? Because that was the best <laughs> like 30 seconds of why you should come to Geneva, I've heard. I mean, I think everyone should go to Geneva. I liked uh, it a lot every time I've been there. So but maybe I'm biased. Yeah. So this is the really the most scientific part of the podcast. This is about the national food of Geneva, which is kebab. So have you, what is your favorite kebab in Geneva? Normally there are two choices. It's just one. Alamir, with, Alamir which is not good. It's just and one. And Parfait de Beirut, which is good. So just, I want, I'm not trying to lead you anywhere, anywhere here, but talk to us about kebab in Geneva or anywhere else. It is good. So I don't actually remember which one I went to a couple of years ago. So I can't tell you which one is best. So what time was it that you were? <laughs> I'm funny. not going to answer that question. Uh, but it was good. No, it was great. So I, I do agree. Geneva is excellent. But I actually, I don't really know what. Cut. That was a brilliant, that's a brilliant answer. We cannot, there's nothing we can do with that answer except say, you're right. Chapeau. It was definitely Parfum de Beirut. Wrong. That's it. Yeah, I need to investigate. Maybe I'll talk to who took me last time and figure out where exactly it was we went. I have no idea. So Inu, thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you all the way from DC via Canada. It was a wonderful conversation. Where can people go to find your work and the things you're writing and talking about? You can find me on Twitter at Inumonic and you can follow my expert page at the Council of Foreign Relations at CFR.org where I'll be posting blogs and other articles that I write. I just want to introduce this as, of course, our now, every episode segment on the end of globalization, we bring in our uh, trades planning executive producer, uh, vice chairman, and uh, field correspondent, Michelle, to talk to us about the end of globalization, Michelle. Is globalization over? No, Rob. It turns out globalization is not over. And actually, the yellow wolves who eat bananas may have saved it. Wait, wait. Wolves? Yes. Okay. So maybe not really the yellow wolves who eat bananas, but... They were a part of this big event called Eurovision. You might have heard about it. And I think this event proves that globalization is not over, at least in Europe. I think European countries are willing to kind of help each other out. Did either of you watch Eurovision? I did, yeah. They hurt my ears. I enjoyed it. Not a fan. Already so mean. Just not a fan. Anyway, generally, actually, I'm also pissed off that Latvia got eliminated in the middle of Eurovision. What happened? 
Why'd they get eliminated? They got eliminated before the final. That's not right. They got eliminated. And other front runners like Spain, Italy, or that lady who kept washing her hands on TV. I think that was a pretty good front runner. Actually, she almost won. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say it was Serbia, I think. They're usually really good. As long as it's not Albania, I'm keep They're going. good at washing their hands, that's for sure. Yeah, they were pretty high up on the board, but obviously Ukraine won. It wasn't really a big surprise. Did they have a good song? Nah, not really. But Eurovision has always been political and will always be political, so what else can you expect? Okay. So what does this teach us about globalization? Who should have won? Nobody. We're all losers by listening to this. Russia. Nobody's a winner. Yeah, Russia won by having us listen to this. <laughs> no, out the right side, this isn't just a consolation win for Ukraine. It's not that it's going to bring morale up. It actually means that Ukraine is going to be hosting Eurovision next year. So hopefully that means that we can all focus on organizing a beautiful event in Ukraine in a war-less Ukraine. So folks, globalization is not dead yet, and Michelle will keep an eye on it for us here at Trade Planning. That brings us to perhaps the most important segment already. This is the This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. We've got some pretty big news here. Tell me. I'm excited. I know there's a lot of bad news in the world, and we don't want to add to that necessarily, but I do have to share with you that there's a large cedar tree in one of the local parks that's going to have to come down. So the tree next to it, of course, fell. The roots were entangled. The, the tree did go through four different consultant reports, two of which were described as inconclusive before it was determined the tree must, unfortunately, come down. So, the, uh, so we ask ourselves, if a tree falls in Geneva, will somebody hear it? The answer is yes, at least four consultants and, of course, a local journalist. So I think if you're a tree guy, <laughs> maybe there's business here. Cutting down trees? Oh, examining trees. You, I don't think you've really been listening to the, to the broadcast lately. Trees no. are very important. I, I, just, I, least, I just shut it off when I, when I stop hearing myself. <laughs> so another thing, I think we, we do ask a lot of our guests about Geneva being boring. But in fact, that's not what Peter V says anymore. Mm. He's out for a walk in a local park. Again, a local park. This is not near the Cedar, so don't, don't get worried about that. He's working for the World Economic Forum, and he was dive-bombed by a local hawk, which cut his head. There's actually a picture in the paper. The hawk was anti-globalization. He worked for the World Economic Forum. <laughs> so apparently this was another comment on the end of globalization. That's how Although you know Michelle it's says it's not over. That's how you know it's over. So if you are walking through a Geneva Park uh, anytime soon, walk calmly. Also, if you happen to work for the World Economic Forum, Keep walk even down. calmer. <laughs> Keep your Keep head, your down. head down. down. Stay in Davos. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be walking through local parks. What about inflation? We got something on inflation? Yeah, speaking of inflation, you know what's going to be really expensive? Fixing my broken phone. Not if you had Case Folklore. What's Case Folklore? So Case Folklore is a free customizable case that you can buy for your phone and not break it like you do, Rob. So listeners out there, don't be like Rob. And go pick up a customized case by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore and using the promo code explaining at checkout. Could I get a Taylor Swift case, for instance? You could. I mean, if you really wanted to. I don't know why you would want to, but you could at Case Folklore. Check out their Instagram page. Use the promo code explaining. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 32, brought to you by Germanium, Baby Formula Panic, and of course, Poutine. Not that one, folks. The other one. We're talking about the food. Canadian one. <laughs> That's right. We also want to thank our executive producer and White House correspondent slash vice chairman slash executive chairman, Michelle Oguin, as well as Valentina Saponara for helping us produce this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, 
or anywhere else you get your really podcast. anywhere you get your we're, podcast. we're literally everywhere we're omnipresent also don't forget to leave us a review on apple Podcasts and spotify hashtag five stars as i always say they do help and we know you have the time if you can listen to this podcast you can also follow us on twitter at tradesplaining or on instagram at trade.splaining or email us your questions comments the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com if you want you can also send us a hawk or carrier pigeon just make sure they don't dive bomb us and of course listen responsibly